Welcome to Conversations from Here with me, Dana Ziegler. These candid, unfettered talks create connection and inspiration across the human story. These are the sharings of how we came to be ourselves, how we found our life's purpose, and how we made it from there to here. I speak with performers, artists, artisans, creators, innovators, entrepreneurs, and other remarkable people about what they do and how they came to do it. Also, the music you hear on this show is performed, as always, by Brad Watson. On this episode of Conversations from Here, I speak with Victoria Rose, musician, teacher, and force for good. We talk about her upbringing in Green Bay, Wisconsin, an early life with horses, formative years in New York City playing music and working at CBGB's, her brief stint as a Scientologist, getting sober, finding yoga, hanging out with Buddhist monks in Ladakh, India, coming to terms with divisions in the Kundalini Yoga community, navigating societal polarization, cultivating divine feminine power, and paving the way for her next path. It was so wonderful to reconnect with my wise, funny, and insightful friend and mentor. Fantastic and fascinating talk. Here's me and Vicki. She talks. Hello there, Vicki Rose. Hi, Dana. I'm I'm thrilled to see you because it's been five million years as it has been with so many friends. So I'm thank you for thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for asking. I, it's it's great to see you. And uh, you know, it, we've been kind of following each other on social media, which is one of the saving graces of the pandemic and also one of the evils of the pandemic I well guess. and it's in, in a way like it's it's all about how you use it you know technology mm -hmm. can be so helpful and connecting and whatever and it can also be the bane of our existence because it can take us down the other path so yeah you know, been very mindful about both of us respectively have been very mindful about about how we use it but you are one of the people that I have had in mind to talk to for the podcast and um, you were my first official yoga teacher in Los Angeles and so right. and I know that you because I know you I know that you have an amazing story and so I wanted to to start at the beginning because um, you were you're a midwesterner really you're from Wisconsin right originally Green Bay Wisconsin I was Green born Bay, and raised my parents were born and raised there yeah lived in the same house my whole life 
Packers fan. It's kind of in the blood. Cheesehead. Uh, <laughs> Cheesehead came so much later. Did it it really? came so much later. Like, I'm older school than that. I'm Vince Lombardi, man. I'm Curly Lambeau, you know? Yeah. Cheesehead is, you know, I know it's been around a couple decades now, but it's relatively new to me, you know? That's right. Because the Packers, I think, refers to um, the breweries, the, mm -mm. the packing. Meat Packers. Oh. Meat, Meat Packers. Mm -hmm. Of course. Yeah, there was a Green Bay used to have one of the largest meatpacking companies, if not the largest meatpacking company in the world or in the country, in the world, probably at the time. Yeah. 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 But yeah, that was Acme Meatpacking was their first sponsor. Wow. Because it's all those European and especially German immigrants. Right? Yeah, um, I'm of Belgian and Czech extraction on my father's side and those were the green bay immigrants green bay used to i don't know if this is a true statistic anymore but when i was growing up it was the third largest belgian settlement in the world after belgium itself the belgian congo and then green bay wisconsin wow mm -hmm. wow i did not know that so my dad was a banker and we used to go out on the weekends and he'd go visit people he'd given loans to and that kind of stuff. Very much handshake banker, very community oriented. And, you know, we used to drive around with him on Saturdays and Sundays. Then we'd go out to what is now housing, but it was a dairy farm. And those people were still speaking Patois. They were still mm -hmm. speaking Belgian French. They were Walloon. My family's Walloon Belgian. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That was still happening in the early 60s there. And then and then you also, I know we, we, we connected on something recently. Uh, we were talking about horses. And did you, yeah. did, were they all, all over the place around Green Bay? Or how did you have your horse connection? Well, my mom, my mother came from an upper middle class um, family. And my dad came from a blue collar family, basically. Mm -hmm. Although his dad, his dad went from his father was a mate, uh, a, a bricklayer mason, mm -hmm. and then that guy became a banker. Then my dad was a banker, but that was it was kind of a different lineage and a different kind of much earthier kind of thing. But my mother was had this this mother who wanted her daughters to marry well, right? She came from her. She grew up with a divorced mother in the nineteen. 19- in, at the turn of the century and lived in the Polish ghetto in Milwaukee. You know, she said, uh, we were the only ones who weren't Polish. And I'm kind of like, mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, but you know, and, and her mother just lived kind of hand to mouth, but she taught her piano and she dressed her up nicely and she got a good husband who was mm -hmm. my grandfather. And then she did the same thing for her four beautiful daughters. Part of that was equestrianism. Huh. We learned how to ride. And so my I'm the youngest of five and my older sisters learned to ride and they put me on a horse while I was still in diapers. And my first lesson, I remember I was three years old and I was riding Duchess and it was English mm -hmm. and I couldn't reach the stirrups. So they tightened up the leathers, the straps so I could put my feet in. I remember learning how to post and all that stuff. and. Then, uh, and then I, we just, we just, oh, I know what it was. My mom was a member of a country club and it was 
the Oneida Golf and Riding Club. And so she would go golfing and she dropped me at the stables. And I was fine with that. That was great, you know? And I had all these horse statues and yeah, I just, I always was into it. Mm-hmm. And then in high school, I, when I was about 12, I learned to ride five gators and three gators and Tennessee walkers, you know, these high stepping, yep. beautiful animals. And um, so when I was in high school, I was riding them for pocket change. Never was, I didn't like jumping, mm-hmm. that whole going up now. Yeah. Yeah. But, but the flat seat and all that, and I love, I love the breeds. The Tennessee walkers and the saddlebreds are so sweet mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. nice. And, and then, you know, I learned to ride Western somewhere along the way and whatever. So it's always been around. I did have a couple horses, mm-hmm. Taffy, the Icelandic pony. And Brownie, who seemed to be part saddlebred. You know, he was just a nice bay mongrel horse, mm-hmm. you know, good guy. So yeah, I've just always been around him just until I moved to New York. But, and then I'd go up to Central Park Stables and rent a horse for the afternoon. Not a lot, but it was a few times a year. To reconnect, yeah. There's something really magical about horses and especially the connection of girls with horses. It's, it's sort of like this magical creature that's bearing you away to another, to another world in a certain way. You know, you're on, you feel powerful, you're up and you're, and you're, uh, you know, you're, you're on this big engine. Yeah, there is, and I was thinking it's empowering mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. There's a communication that's very subtle that, um, and I don't know if it's just female, but uh, just feminine, but it's really lovely. My sister, my one of my older sisters then had um, a Shire draft horse breeding farm mm-hmm. in uh, up near Ojai. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I got to be with those horses and, you know, talk about power. There was one horse they bought for their hitch out in New Jersey, you know, and you usually get a gelding for hitches. Mm-hmm. And um this gelding came and every time they put the blinders on him, he'd freak out. He had been mistrained, you know? Mm-hmm. And there was this big fat lady down the road who loved to ride horses. And she bought this giant saddle for this horse so that she could ride this big horse because she was a big woman. She weighed a lot, you know? And I went and rode him. And I'm telling you, it was like, you know, the, the Shires are called the gentle giants. Yes. And, and Oh my God. I looked down and I said, you know, if this horse wants to go, he's going. Yep. You know, <laughs> but talk about power. It was like, I can see where the knights were into this, you know, it's like this beautiful long stride and, and the gentleness of the horse, just listening constantly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was quite an experience too. And that beautiful neck that the Shires have just so, and they're just mm-hmm. so powerful. And well, you look down on a Shire and the neck's about this wide as opposed to like this uh-huh. skinny little Tennessee Walker neck, right? Yeah. And then there's a Shire neck, like, whoa. <laughs> yeah. And the legs are way out, you know, like I felt like a kid again. Yes. Because it was outsized, right? I felt like I was, back to being six or eight on a horse again. Uh-huh. Do, you, do you ever have any opportunity to ride now at all? Not very often, not very often. Although I see in my new place, there's a stable right down in Bradbury here. And I think people are looking for someone to exercise their horses. And I have toyed with going over and talking to someone about that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
That would be wonderful. I mean, even just uh, even even not riding, but interacting with horses on the ground is just an amazing thing. I mean, and and how they're so different in personality. Some of them are really inquisitive and very sweet and, and gentle, and then others are maybe not so much. And you learn quickly which horses are. <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> just like people. Just like people. Just like yeah. people. Just like people. And then um, I wanted to ask about, um, you mentioned New York City, uh, mm -hmm. and when, when was that, that you transitioned from your bucolic life in Wisconsin to New well, York City? Well, uh, that was 1977. <clears throat> uh, I went from Wisconsin, I, took, uh, I went to college in, in uh, Cedar Rapids, Iowa at a small liberal arts school called Cove mm -hmm. College. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that they pretty much you had to do to graduate from there was take an off campus semester. And they kind of set things up. So my last semester of college, I'd taken a European semester, art history, that was great. Mm -hmm. And then, um, but my last semester, I just had to, to finish up. My last semester was uh, New York City, New York term it was called. Mm -hmm. And so I got there and uh, worked at a place called the Jean Cocteau Repertory, which was a theater on the Bowery. Mm -hmm. um, re a true revolving repertory theater. Uh -huh. um, and uh, just loved New York, just loved it. And then I went back to Iowa, finished up the one class I needed to finish that summer. And then, um, went into my semi-retirement in Green Bay, much to my parents' dismay of being out drinking all night and <laughs> sleeping all day and, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh -huh. And <clears throat> my dad left one morning, he said, I want to talk to you, Victoria, when I come home. And, you know, whenever he called me Victoria, it was not a good thing. It's not a good thing. <clears throat> so... <laughs> And oddly enough, I get this phone call because I had talked to my friend McCracken, who was still in New York and been on the New York term with me. He stayed. And I get this call from Eve Adamson, the director of the theater. I had been an intern there. She said, McCracken tells me you're coming to New York. And I said, yeah. And she said, when? I said, I don't know. And she said, I need you here. I want to hire you. And I said, OK, when do you need me? She said, I need you here Monday. This was Thursday, right? And I said, okay, I'll be there. And so when I went, ran downtown and I booked myself a flight and then um, charged it to my dad. And then, um, and then. Did he know this when, before you no, charged? No, he came flight? home and he said, Victoria, come down here. And oh, I said, was, okay. I know what you're going to say. I said, I have a job. It starts Monday in New York. I've got my flight. I'm ready to go. And he's like, okay, we were going to send you to secretarial school in Milwaukee. That's <laughs> like, oh. the, the magical thing is when you tell your parents so, you have a job, then they're all, suddenly they're all for what you're going to do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and then I got there and I moved there, uh, Lower East Side, walking distance from the theater, East Third Street, across from the Hells Angels Clubhouse, which was always an interesting thing. Experiences with them, very interesting. Uh, and uh, I remember I flew into New York on October 18th, 1977, the night that Reggie Jackson hit three home runs to win the World Series. So I landed in an all city party. Wow. It was, it was just great. And then I, you know, so I got there on 
that Saturday, for Saturday night or something and um, started work at the Jean Cocteau, which is on the corner of Bowery and Bond. And a very short block down was Bowery and Bleecker. Bleecker Street ran right into the doorway of that nightclub, CBGB's, which uh -huh. is... So I worked at the Jean Cocteau for a year. And somewhere towards the end of that year, I met a guy and he, who ended up teaching me how to play bass actually, but he mm -hmm. took me to CBGB's. And I remember walking in the place and it was dark and it stunk and it, it was just a wonderful place. And I went up to the corner of the stage. The stage was kind of in a corner. They had a corner sticking out and there was a chair there. I couldn't see over everyone. It was when people were still pogoing and stuff, right? Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> I, I got up on this chair and Lux interior from the cramps leaned right into my face like this far away singing, I don't know, Human Fly or whatever he was singing. And I was yeah. like, this is great. <laughs> I don't know if I could say that, but that's what I was thinking. Yes. Like, I love this place, you know? And um, then I started hanging around and then the manager, Merv, hired me to do backstage security. So you, you and you weren't doing music until the boyfriend was teaching you bass. Right. You, were you doing music at all before when you were? No, I was trying to do, I was sort of kind of doing acting, but I was really just drinking and partying. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. And I ran the box office there. Everybody did everything, but I was like the main box office. She had me in administrative positions. I told her I wanted to act. And the Jean Cocteau gave us part of being in the repertory is that you got um, stage fighting lessons, voice lessons, and acting lessons. And, you know, I was like, but you never cast me. And she goes, well, you're not going to any of those classes. You don't seem to have an interest. And I was like, oh, she busted me. I didn't even know she was busting me, you know, but at, I was like, oh yeah, of course, you know, because all these other really talented people were showing up to these things and doing them. And I just really didn't have the dedication for that as much as I love theater. She cast me in a couple of things, but they were small parts. And, and so, um, so then I quit that job and kind of moved over to CBGB's and, uh, you know, then pretty soon I got, not pretty soon, I guess about a year and a half later, I got moved up to the front door. And who were the bands at that time? Was Talking Heads, Blondie, were they there at the time? Blondie was kind of out of there by that time. Okay. They had come up with that lawsuit that gave them a lot of money. They sued chrysalis i think and made a bunch mm -hmm. of money and were able to get out talking heads were still around and, and yeah i used to hang out with them you know and i remember one night chris friend said i'm going over to the ritz to hear so-and-so you want to come with me and i was like yeah okay let's go you know very personable guy the ramones were still around mm -hmm. television was still around um the police came in and played their very first american gig right Mm -hmm. they were amazing because they came in their flight was late at jfk they came in and they didn't even get a sound check they just set up on a thursday night they were playing thursday friday saturday they they came in and by the time they got their stuff it was time to start the first set and they just started wow and there was like eight people in the room you know 
And they were really nice. Every time they came to New York, they put me on their guest list. You know, they, it's, you know, it was a really fun job. It was a really fun job, but I started playing bass. Uh, my then boyfriend who became my, my good friend later, mm-hmm. Abe McSpade, uh, taught me to play bass so that I could play in his band called the Cooties. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and I had musical training as a kid. Okay, so I had taken many years of piano and many years of flute. I taught myself guitar and music was always a part of my life. Mm-hmm. When I was a little girl, my dad would uh, put records on after dinner. And I, you know, I can sing you whole soundtracks of South Pacific and Hello Dolly and Fiddler on the Roof. And we would act them all out and sing the songs. And it was part of what we did, you know, music was, was a thing. And the music lessons, the piano lesson was all part of that rounded upper middle-class woman. You mm-hmm. learned to play piano so you could play Christmas carols for your children. Or the other explanation was music is a language and it's universal. You should know how to read and play music. We all had piano lessons. So then, so the cooties were what? What? What uh, sort of genre of music was was the cooties? Sort of post punk rock and roll, or we were, yeah, yeah, we were a pretty rocking band, a little new wavy, you know, and um, but really pretty much straight ahead rock and roll. And uh, you know, we covered "I Can't Stand the Rain" before Tina Turner did. <laughs> Wow. You know, wow. so there was a lot of good R&B stuff going on there a little bit. And uh, yeah, it was it was a really nice band. And um, we were moving up and along and we made 245s, I guess. We pressed 245s. Wayne Kramer produced the first one. Wayne Kramer of the MC5. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we gave him his first job after he got out of jail. <laughs> I'm not sure, but it was really close. Um, and, you know, and we had some, you know, John Holmstrom, who did Punk Magazine, like did the cover art for, the back cover art for one of our things and stuff. I mean, that's the kind of neighborhood the East Village was at the time. It really was. And we were all bartenders or worked in bars. So the band knew everybody and everybody knew the band and everybody was all over the place, you know, and also the visual artists. Herring was around and Basquant was around and, you know, we saw them, they were, they were in and out. I, they were on guest lists or, you know, I was at the front door of, you know, CBGB's. So I met a lot of people there and uh, yeah, that was a lot of fun. And then I got into a ska band, thanks to Aiden McSpade who quickly quit, but Mm -hmm. I stayed and then I got into the toasters and that went for a number of years. Yeah. You know? So, and I was, I didn't realize it at the time, but I was really the only, <clears throat> I and Kate from Selector were the only two actual female musicians at the resurgence of Scott in the 80s. We were the only two around. Wow. And the whole, bla- the whole two-tone thing was not only supposed to be racial, it was supposed to be gender, but it never mm-hmm. happened mm-hmm. because the men in that genre glommed onto the rude boy thing. Mm. I was like, I'm not a rude boy. Right. 
and I'm not going to wear the little A-line skirts or the crinolines. I, I got that in the 70s during the feminist movement. I'm not doing that, you know? So what, um, what is the definition of a rude boy? What is that? Well, there used to be kind of gangs in the 60s and the rude boys and they went around on scooters and they wore pork pie hats oh, yeah. and, and shark skin suits and oh, that was the image. And they were, there were, uh, there was a big influx in, it's British for one thing, yes. that's the roots of it. And there was a big influx of Caribbean people mm -hmm. in the 60s in London yep. and in England because it was, made okay for anyone from the commonwealth of britain to move into any other country mm -hmm. and a bunch of caribbeans jamaicans in particular came mm -hmm. and the originations of scott was actually it's a very pumped up kind of reggae mm -hmm. or reggae was kind of a slowed down version of ska but ska was a originally with people like the mighty sparrow and that ilk was really um uh it had a lot of revolutionary messages about breaking away from the crown and you know that kind of stuff so it had been originally pretty you know i think i can't we're trying to, is it the mighty it wasn't the mighty sparrow it was another guy who used to like on his album covers wear a mask like the lone ranger so that no one could recognize him because of what he was singing wow so it was revolutionary music yeah yeah it was rebel music originally and then of course <clears throat> you take that you take it to london it takes on another thing you know you get into the 60s in london and it takes on kind of the fashion and the carnaby street stuff and all that and then you bring it out again in the 80s and it's got this punk or um the original toasters was kind of punk rockabilly uh-huh there were no horns there was right. none of that, you know? Right. So it was, Rob was kind of a, a, a ska billy guy, you know, uh -huh. the, the, the lead singer and, and guitar player. So, so a little yeah. different from the English beat. <laughs> yeah. 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 Very much so. And, you know, also we didn't have any people of color in our band. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Not to start, no. You know, it was Rob as an Englishman and then four Americans, uh -huh. you know? And the police actually came out of the ska thing a little bit more reggae. Uh, out of the british version of it right i would say they were more reggae yeah oh yeah, yeah. Okay. you know it's a little more laid back it's a little more flowy you know if you think of that bass line on roxanne yes it's reggae it's not ska mm -hmm. mm, interesting. Yeah. okay yeah but um you know then then you're kind of splitting hairs right <laughs> you know unless yeah so, and then the toaster, the toaster is a toaster is someone who is like an MC. In rap, a toaster is someone who is the MC as, you know, when you hear the reggae guys, you know, while everyone's playing, that's what a toaster is. That's that guy. Oh, okay. Yeah. I was it because in my mind, I'm thinking a toaster is somebody who smokes a lot of weed. <laughs> that's that too, isn't there? <laughs> yeah yeah so it it was a it was an overarching umbrella sort of term that you could <laughs> yeah and then some people thought it was the appliance right yeah. <laughs> that's so, you know, there, yeah there's a, yeah there's a few you know 
artifacts around. Was, you know, we used to go around, it was just pre, pre-social media. So when we had a gig, we would go around and put up flyers. Mm-hmm. It was like part of the deal. You know, about a week before the band would all get together and we had these flyers and we'd go around and we'd, we'd like smoke weed and get drunk and put them on, this is a good place to put them in this store, I'll let us put them in here and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then you call your friends and you say, oh, we're playing at Danceteria, or we're playing at the Ritz, or we're playing at CB's, or we're playing at Max's, or we're playing at, oh, there was just a list of clubs. Yeah. There was a list of clubs, you know, we're playing the limelight, we're playing the pyramid, we're playing... Oh, that one just went out of my head, but whatever it was, you know? So yeah, it was, it was really, and the, and the scene kind of moved up to Chelsea a little bit and then down into Soho and Tribeca into the Yeah. Oops. Oh, you faded out there for a second. That's my guess. I kind of drank my way out of that bin. Oh, okay. Okay. There seems to be a little bit of a lag happening. Are you are okay. you hearing me okay? I'm hearing you. Are you hearing me now? I, I'm hearing you now. Yeah, there was a little bit of a lag. But but you were saying you were talking about the scene and the toasters and plant and, and how it was ranging, how it was kind of moving and spreading around town. And then yeah. how long did that go on for your stint with the toasters? Well, let's see, just as far as the range goes, when I first moved to New York, there were two nightclubs that did original music. It was Max's Kansas City and CBGB's and that was it. And there were two factions. Max's was kind of the Andy Warhol heroin people and CBGB's was the kind of grimy, organic, we drink a lot, smoke a lot of dope, why do cocaine, you know? so. So yeah, um, so it was like Ramones Velvet Underground, uh-huh. right? <laughs> like Take that. your pick, you're right. Pick a team. Yeah, and actually I worked at Max's for a while too. I would wait a table there for a while. Now that I remember, it was fun. Um, so uh, yeah, so then different nightclubs began to spring up as more and more bands became available to play, mm-hmm. right? So, and, 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 um, and, and bigger venues, you know, Danceteria, the Peppermint Lounge reopened. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, then there was the, the Ritz and there was Hurrah Uptown. There was <clears throat> a lot of these things that might've been discos were turning into clubs. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so the disco thing was happening 80 and that, that was a fast flame, you know? And so that, that range, and I was in the toasters until, let me think. My first son was born in 88. I was in the toasters till probably about 1986. The toasters didn't form. They formed I think, in about 1980, if I have my dates right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 80, 81, right in there. So, so. you had a good run uh, in mm-hmm. an amazing time. It was an amazing time. It was an amazing time. I mean, I, I have to say, I, I look back at CBGB's. I, 
I love to tell this story, but July 5th, a Sunday, it's dead in CBGB's, it's audition night, nothing's going on. I'm at the front door. No one's coming in, so I'm not worried about charging any money, right? Mm -hmm. There's some band on that's not catching anyone's attention. And I'm playing pinball and I look up and I realize I'm playing pinball with Lauren Hutton and Joey Ramone. And I'm like, how did some girl from Wisconsin end up doing this, you mm -hmm. know? But Lauren had a loft in the same building the Jean Cocteau repertory was in with Mickey Rourke and they would fight and she would leave. And <laughs> come down in like her white Calvin Klein stuff and her dockers and just, <laughs> but she was cool, you know? So yeah, yeah, it was just moments like that at CBS. Yeah. And know? then there was a thing there, you, there was a David Bowie story cause he was doing, cause he was on Broadway at the time doing Elephant Man and he came over at one point. What was that one? Well, he was always really nice. Mm -hmm. You know, and David and Brian Eno, most of those English guys would always offer to pay for their entourage, mm -hmm. right? The American bands, you know, I won't say any names, but they were always like, no, but we're the so-and-so, you know, it's like, yeah, you got some money. Can you support, you know, but yeah, um, David would call up and say, Hi, I'm coming, I'm coming down tonight. Is it all right? You know, he would just call and make sure that like maybe we'd set aside a table for him or if it was okay, he'd just let us know he was coming. That's sweet. Yeah. Very yeah. gentlemanly. Yes. You know, so that was, yeah, they, they were very nice. The, and, and, you know, was, is, is, he's still alive. Yeah. I'm assuming still a very yeah. nice man. <laughs> you know there was a story that you told about how there was a band playing and and you know and at the time of course bands weren't making very much money and david gave five hundred dollars to somebody to say make sure that they get this it was like i think he probably gave it to merv he didn't give it to me yeah but that, that was the kind of person that he was mm -hmm. wanting to support young artists yeah and being very generous yeah yeah so that was, yeah, it was an amazing time. And then of course the owner of CBGB's Hilly was in and of himself, a whole character, you know, just kind of an amazing guy. And, you know, he, he always, all of us can remember him just telling all of us, just be yourself. Don't come in with your bands and try and be someone else. Just be yourself, you know? What a message because nowadays the music industry is so different. You know, we need more of that. We need more of this other person instead of just be yourself. Right. Your thing. Yeah, it's all kind of on a metaphoric auto tune, mm -hmm. you know? Because there's some singers I can't tell the difference from one from the right. other. And yeah. I mean, it's not like, oh, I hate that genre. You know, I, I, I but you know, a lot of the um, female singers have the same quality to their voice. There's not, you know, again, your Raven or a Macy Gray or, you know, most of them sound kind of auto-tuned to me. Mm -hmm. I want to hear a little warble. I want to hear a little 
organic stuff. I want to hear a little <clears throat> catch in the throat once in a while. I'm a huge fan of Brandy Carlisle, who's a person who just she has a phenomenal voice and um, and there's there's a very very much a um, a country quality that she has with yeah. Well, she started as a country artist, didn't she? Yeah, and she's from Washington State. Mm-hmm. And um, and she, yeah, she has this. Just, I was listening to her the other day, and I thought, my God! I mean, d- d- when you see people like this, and you're just so happy that they are getting heard, and that they're successful because the talent is immense, and more people need to hear this instead of all these people who are this kind of generic, as you said, the the um, metaphorical auto tuned. <laughs> you know that's all the same right. formula and then you hear somebody who comes out and you know I mean even somebody like a Lady Gaga who is very much a pop star but she has amazing chops I mean she can do you know right. she did the thing with Tony Bennett recently mm-hmm. uh, Carnegie Hall which will be his last performance because he's you know he's suffering from Alzheimer's right now and everything mm-hmm. and he is 95 I mean yeah and still sounds fantastic because he always maintained his voice. But so there are people here and there who are in the in the modern world of music, but it's not as much a time of innovation as it as it was back in, you know, the, the 60s, the 70s or, you know, even maybe the early part of the 80s. But you were I think, I think that there's an innovation in um, the rap scene. Yes, and I listen. Uh, you know, I have a cousin. His name is Casa Overall, who is a guy. He and his <clears throat> they don't work together, but he and his brothers create beats and stuff like that. And I'm like, you know, this technology is like way out of my wheelhouse. But what they do with it is is quite incredible. And you know, last night I went to the Velvet Underground documentary, which is really good i can't wait to see that well yeah you got to get to it tonight because lemley's is done with it tonight but um but it's re- maybe it'll be on on tv i think they'll really yeah they'll release it streaming somewhere but, but you know this this sound current thing john kale with his his idea of the sound current in the drone which was the basis of mm-hmm. how velvet underground started mm-hmm. it's like it's the sound current and it's looking for the 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 um tones between or the tones that are created by a single sound hearing it over and over and over again so it was that avant-garde and i think that there's a lot of avant-garde and experimentation they would maybe call it avant-garde but i think there's a lot of it coming out of the 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 production due to the technology that rappers use Mm -hmm. I love it. I think it's great. Uh-huh. You know, it's just not, I, I don't know. I think Autotune has done a thing. I mean, the, even the guy who invented it said, a producer came to me or, or told me, he said, I don't have to look for singers anymore, just someone who looks good. Mm. You know, so I like to hear someone at the end of their breath. Absolutely. You know, I like to hear them fill up and go for it, you know? And, and you know, Lady Gaga does that. She does do yeah. that. You can, you can feel her using her body. And she's also a songwriter. Yes, yes. There's, that. There's that too. Mm-hmm. So 
I don't want to say all of them, all them youngsters. <laughs> I also love that she recently bought Frank Zappa's old house in the Hollywood Hills. No kidding. She is a huge Frank Zappa fan uh -huh. and wanted to have that studio intact as, yeah. as it was, even though it's cleared out. But yeah. I thought, you know, it's going to be just fine in her hands because she appreciates it so much. Uh, yeah, I think she's she understands the lineage there mm -hmm. and will honor it. Yeah, yeah. But I wanted to ask you too, Ezra. So here you're you're having this incredible life in New York and and uh -huh. on the scene and everything. How did you how did you end up getting married and having kids? <laughs> oh, oh, that's funny. That's a horse story, actually. Actually, I got I got sober. I drank my kind of drank my way out of the toasters. Mm -hmm. Drank and drug my way out of the toasters. Did that for a few years, bartended, blah blah blah, and then got sober and uh, went to a doctor's appointment uptown in a neighborhood that I was rarely in. But the walk to the to Columbus Circle took me along Central Park South, where all the carriage horses are. Oh yeah, and there was one carriage horse that was up on the curb and i stopped to pet her her name was biddy mm -hmm. and i asked the guy who is an irishman why is your horse like this he said because because she's a she's a bit shy of the traffic and we started talking and he said oh i've got a fare why don't you get up on the box with me and i rode with him on all his fares for the rest of the afternoon wow and that became my husband wow so a very charming irishman very charming Irishman, obstreperous also. Mm -hmm. Oh my God, did I learn a lot from that guy? So, <laughs> and then, then, uh, yeah, that's how I ended up. And uh, we had a couple boys, and we uh, got married, had a couple kids, moved to upstate New York, where um, we ran a tavern. Mm -hmm. And about a year. Two years into that, he was uh, hit by a car, fatally hit by a car. Oh. And so there I was in upstate New York running a tavern, which was fine. I'd been a bartender and a yeah. cook and a chef and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And then I stayed there until I thought the... Um, let's say the colloquial racism and lack of diversity, I mm -hmm. said, I don't want to raise my kids here. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So then um, we came to LA. Wow, what, I have a, sisters what a culture. Wow, what a, what a culture shift to go from upstate New York to here. And what, what year was that? I moved here in 2004. One of my sons came out two years before one son came out and lived with my sister mm -hmm. for a year. I think that was 2002. And then the other son came out in 2003 and I was finally able to sell the business and come out in 2004. Right. And, and your sister was the connection to yoga, to Kundalini yoga specifically, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that's how you made that connection. Cause that's a whole nother, a whole nother chapter right but in the between that is a little bit of scientology 
you had, so you had your flirtation with Scientology and what, what was the thing that, that, yeah, you kind of thought, mm, I don't think this is really for me. Everything is the same thing that chases me out of everything. Dogma. Yeah. Yep. You know? And they keep asking. So my sons were going to a school that was Scientology based and then they hired me. That's the job I had when I came out. So I taught at that school as an elementary school teacher for three years and had to do all the Scientology courses that they needed me to do, you know, the study technology and the whatever. Anyway, um, and then it just got to be like, well, this is the way you have to be if you're a good Scientologist. And I'm like, "Mm, no. So this was more than a flirtation with Scientology. This was the, you were in it for, for a few years. I was in it for a few years, thanks to the school. And I had to keep training. That's, that's the thing. They make you keep training. Right. And spend you know, more money. Yeah. And they make you keep training. And, and it was a lot of work. Again, this same old thing that's happening that I see happening with a lot of anything related to religion you work really hard, or let's say cult, um, you work really hard, they hardly pay you. And when you're not successful, it's because you're not doing it right. Right. It's always your fault. Mm-hmm. You've fallen mm-hmm. down. It's your responsibility. Why didn't you do this? Or you should have been an it. Right. You know? Yeah. And so anyway, I got out of that. I learned a lot in Scientology. I did. I, I picked up some really good good things. They're really good communicators. They have good communication skills and a good communication formula. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, sometimes I have to say, wait, did I really hear that? You know, mm-hmm. I really have to think, did I hear that? Or how exactly do I want to say this? Mm-hmm. So I, I learned a lot with that. And, uh, and then I retired after three years and <laughs> and it was right at the time I had been taking Kundalini yoga classes at the same time at Golden Bridge mm-hmm. meeting my sister down there every Sunday it was kind of a thing we did and uh, then uh, I remember Gurmukh walked up to me and said why aren't you taking teacher training oh. and it just came out of my mouth I said I'm taking it next year I was like Who, whoa you said that? <laughs> you know? and, but everything lined up for me to do it uh, that was the year I, I retired from the Scientology school, and it was the year I got an inheritance. So I had the time and the money, and that's what I did. I took my training in 2007, finished in 2008, and just continued to teach until this month. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Straight on through. And, and with that, you were doing a lot of trips to India. And then also, um, was, it, was it Nepal or Bhutan where, where you were most recently visiting oh, it's, the monks? It's a place called Ladakh, which oh, is Ladakh. actually in India. It is in India. Okay. So if you look at India and it's got that little top knot. Yep. Ladakh is the eastern side of that top knot. Okay. So Ladakh would be like was its own kingdom at one time. It'd be like the little sister to the kingdom of Tibet. Okay. Uh-huh. Yeah. And it's very Buddhist up there. Mm-hmm. And I was drawn to that by a picture I saw in the National Geographic when I was three. They have those big Dharma horns, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. And I saw that in a National Geographic when I was three. And, you know, they have the hats, the yes. Mohawk hats and everything. I was like, I have to go there. Yeah. You know? And then my friend, Mary Green, was leading a trip. And she said they were going to go up. It was really Buddhist. I said, oh, do they have those horns? And she said, yeah. And I said, I'm coming. Do they have those hats? <laughs> 60 years later you know this is like the first thing ever on my bucket list and so 60 years later I'm doing it you know and I was so happy to be in Ladakh the first couple days I could hardly speak I thought I was just gonna cry it was I was just like I am so home and 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 I go back and I listen to the the chants and the pujas and I'm like I know those words Mm-hmm. You know, it's very, very deeply familiar to me. Yeah, it's almost like a past life thing. I remember you and I talking about, um, we had one night in class where we, I forget which mantra we were doing, and we were, you know, doing the chanting and whatnot. And I had this, I had this weird flashback to like, eighth century Tibet or some crazy thing. And, mm-hmm. and, I, and I, and I, and you were there and it was like, <gasps> wow. Yeah. That was something yeah. else. Yeah. Makes you so, wonder about that past life stuff, doesn't it? Well, you know, and I met a llama there whom I'm in touch with on a weekly basis, uh-huh. you know, um, and we met and it was just like, we knew each other. Like, oh, hi. Even the leaders of the trip were like, what's with Vicky and Stanzen? What's, what do they got going on? I mean, they were almost like worried about it, you know? <laughs> yeah. like, no, 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 not that, not that, no. <laughs> but um, yeah, we've, he, you know, I said, you're like, you're like a son or something, you know? And he is my son's age. He's right between the two of them. Oh, okay. But, and, and, uh, and he calls me mom, but you know, he's a monk. He's in a monastery. He's studying scripture. He's learning things. And so he'll send me the latest chant or something like that. And then I'll, or he'll send me a lecture to listen to, and then I'll listen to it and then I'll talk to him about it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of studying with him even long distance. Yeah. I just like it up there. That's where I want to die. Yeah. You know, and Stanzen and, and, and my other friend Chamba said that they, they, they've already said they'd take care of my remains. So I'm, you know, you know my American sons aren't too crazy about it, but you know, uh-huh. it's too bad. <laughs> so I wonder what, um, it's interesting. I, I wonder if maybe even the study of yoga was, maybe that was part of what led you kind of in the circuitous, circuitous route to this, to your, your Ladakh time. I, you know, I agree with you on that. I, it's, it's, it's not a wonder. I mean, uh, is any route securitous? I, I don't know, you know, but I do know the very first time I went to Golden Bridge mm-hmm. after I moved to LA, I was here for a couple of weeks and my sister kept saying, you gotta come down and do yoga. You've got to come down and do yoga. And I was like, eh, yeah, man. You know, every 90% of the time I get in the car, I don't know where I'm going. It's too much trouble, you know? And I finally, it, she said, you've got to come down. The Buddhist relics are here. You've got to see them. The Buddhist relics were on tour. And that's why I went. Interesting. I didn't go for class. Uh-huh. I went for the Buddhist relics. And, so, and, and what were these Buddhist relics? Where, where did well, they- the Buddhist relics, um, sometimes they're actual things, mm-hmm. you know, like beads or spectacles or something like that. But generally what they are is when the, 
Rinpoche's, the Buddhist holy men, mm -hmm. the Rinpoche's, the Lohans, whoever they are, <clears throat> are burned, mm -hmm. they leave behind little pieces of melted bone. And these are supposed to be, and I realized that's where the pearls of wisdom, that saying comes from. They look pearl-like. They're actually melted bone. Wow. And these are the bits of wisdom that they have left behind for all of us, mm -hmm. right? And then the rest of them, they're, they're, they're up and out, right? Right, after they make rainbows. According maybe, to I don't know, or maybe after the, after the eagle takes them away or whatever, whatever happens, you know, there's a couple that you can get burned or they can put you on a pie or on a top of a mountain and let the eagle come and take you away piece mm -hmm. by piece. The sky burial. Yeah. That kind of appeals to me. You know, you're feeding. Burning. Yeah. Burning ain't so bad either. So, but whatever, it's just the body, you know, it's just a container. So, um, uh, uh, so that's how I got to Golden Bridge first was through Buddhism. And my, that sister of mine who got me hooked into Kundalini Yoga is also a Buddhist. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So, um, so and yeah. I, I'm, I'm reminded also of your dear friend, David Scharf, whom you knew right. at CBGB's. He was and, in the student teachers, right. Yes, and then he, he was with a Lama for a very, very long time studying with him. And then I remember meeting him at Golden, at, uh, at um, Golden Soul. And uh -huh. I took meditation with him. And it was so amazing because he had these incredible stories about his time with his Lama and the thing about the, uh, when he ascended and you know in the pyre and there were rainbows everywhere. Wow. They create rainbows. It's, I didn't know that. Yeah, that's that's a thing. That's why you said that. Okay. All right. Yeah. And uh, so, but but it was so interesting to me that that you had this friend as long ago as you know your time in New York, and he came back into your life, and and he of course is a practicing Buddhist. So you right, your Buddhism connection. Well, and I met him. I I I was like David Sharp. He's teaching at Golden Bridge, and there he was. Yeah. You know. He was teaching uh, Buddhist meditation at Golden Bridge. That's where I first ran into him. And I wasn't so into the Buddhism at that time. I was all, all about Kundalini, you right, know? Right. So, yeah. And there was um, kind of two, I want to say two or three years ago um, that in, in the Kundalini yoga world, there was a bit of an upset and it had to do yeah, two years ago with the Yogi Bhajan stuff. Yes, with all of that. And I know that um, there are people certainly who it's been interesting to watch and see how people have evolved from that. And some people have taken it. Some people have rejected the practice altogether. Some people have taken it and kind of done their own thing with it. Others have kept their names and others have not. And uh, it's been interesting to kind of see how people have dealt with that. And for anybody who doesn't know, there were allegations of abuse, of all kinds of abuse with regard to Yogi Bhajan yeah. back in the day. And he passed away, I believe in 2004. Yep. So some of the, I guess the, the KRI stance was, well, he's gone, so we're not gonna 
really address it so much or we're going to move forward with you know a certain thing and and some people yeah he's dead what good would it do well exactly i have an answer for that there are a few hundred if not a few thousand people who are really harmed by him yes and what that harm needs to be addressed and taken care of yes that's why (laughs) exactly yes i know i'm reading the the thing going so you're just gonna just kind of brush it under the rug and i had a real problem with that yeah and um so i i myself i i stepped away from teaching and i i'm 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 not really sure how it was interesting because um guru singh um who taught at what was it not with nine treasures no he taught at yoga west yoga west that's right and he talked about how he handled it was he said he acknowledged these things yep and said we're no longer going to have a picture of this guy in our studio Mm -hmm. because it can be triggering for people it's just not good and so we're going to take the wisdom of the teachings and we're going to separate it from the person yeah and that's kind of you know and uh, so I thought it was really interesting because he was a legacy. He was a personal student of Yogi Bhajan, of course, and and a long time. Um, you know, he's one of the one of the great legacy teachers. And um, I, I was I was actually really happy to hear that he he issued a, a, essentially an apology for people who were harmed and acknowledged that these things had happened. And very early on, right very away. Early on, yes, you understand something about him too. He had more than one teacher. He had several teachers. He had a couple teachers before Yogi Bhajan. Okay. So perhaps he wasn't as shocked as how stupidly and, you know, awfully human someone like that can be, you know? Um, maybe he experienced it before. I don't know. I know a couple people are in Kundalini Yoga who were in Landmark. They're like, yeah, we've been through this before, you know? Um, so... Yeah, and it, yeah, he's and he's got his whole Kundalini University going on, and and I, you know, and that's that's great. Yeah, so yeah, I think and it and it so it really it it took people by surprise, and for a lot of people, it probably wasn't such a big surprise that there were not good things happening. In oh, especially countries. all the people that have to exactly <laughs> right. My God, but. You know? And I and those people finally were able to have a voice and were able to speak to mm-hmm. this. And um, I just I find it really interesting, fascinating how people how people either compartmentalize things and rationalize things, or they face things and acknowledge things and then move forward from that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> you know, and everybody has their package of karma they come in with. Mm-hmm. There's that, and I'm a firm believer in that. It doesn't mean you have to know what your karma is, but how you view things, what your subconscious mind is operating off of, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I listened to one lady who said she took her 20 years to realize that she had been actually been a victim. Wow. There's another person who's like, yeah, well, that happened. I'm moving on. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it's just like, yeah, okay. Now I don't want that to run my life or, or whatever that I'm moving on is. Yes. And sometimes people say I'm moving on and they're in denial and they're holding it in and it really messes with them. And other people are, 
there are people that are kind of crazy and destitute and on the street. And one person whose <clears throat> testimony said, every time I hear the word inhale from a Kundalini yoga, like, a kundalini, like we do in Kundalini yoga, mm -hmm. inhale. And as I said, every time I hear the word inhale, I get a little charge. You know, it can be that effectual. So, um, you know, and my viewpoint is it's, it's patriarchy. Here's a man with power in the Piscean age during the Kali Yuga. What do you expect? Mm -hmm. There's no surprise here, mm -hmm. right? And there were many of them. Yes. Well, and I kind of started to kind of sift through yoga and find out, you know, what's the lens. I mean, a lot of what we learned in our, in our Kundalini yoga teacher training is just straight up yoga. Right. Of course. You know, it's just straight up yoga. Yeah. So, you know, a couple sets, all the pranayam, all of that mm -hmm. is just, it's yoga practice. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, then there's some of it I read, well, that's some of his BS. Okay. No, mm -hmm. no. But then as I go and I start to look at, well, where did this yoga come from? It's mostly masculine. It's mostly through the male lens, the masculine lens, I should say, mm -hmm. the masculine lens. And so, but I know there were some yoginis way back there and I'm going to find them, <laughs> you know, and I'm going to start seeing if we can bring some of the more feminine lens out into the world of yoga. And that's kind of why I stopped and I'm getting my nest set. It's taking me a little while, but you know, when I'm set, I'm, I'm ready to study and I'm ready to go through stuff and, and find out where that divine feminine power is. And I'm kind of mad at it. I'm like, where have you been? <laughs> yeah. You've been hiding about behind this, oh, but it's not compassionate. Where is the feminine warrior? Where are you? Come out from under your rock. You know, this is necessary now, you know? Um, <clears throat> stop being a limp. Right, where is Dorita on, on the back of, riding on the back of her tiger? Yes, yeah. Bring her out. Yeah, yeah. And all those weapons she has in each arm, on each arm, you know? Right. And, and, you know, where is the, the, the head up temper that comes with an angry mother that should be being directed to some of this stuff that's happening to so many people that are becoming more and more and more disenfranchised. Yeah. Is one of the things I love about Buddhism. When I first got there, you know, I, they'd be chanting away and chanting away. And I go, so what was that chant, chant for? And say, it's for compassion. And then they're chanting away and chanting away. And I go, what was that going for? It's for compassion. And then, you know, again and again. And so finally they go, Chamba. Okay. Where is this compassion? You're talking about compassion. What's the source? And he says, it's the belief that at some time we've all been somebody's mother. Mm. That, and with that motherly love, it's unconditional and it's fierce. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so I'm looking for a little ferocity <laughs> yeah. because it's really needed right now. You know, a little heat and a little charge properly directed, mm -hmm. you know, like a laser beam or something, you know? Yes. <laughs> well, because one of the, uh, one of my beefs that I always had with sort of the Kundalini uh, teaching of what, and, and again, this comes out of the 
patriarchy of what a woman is supposed to be. She is supposed to be graceful and above it all and uncomplaining and essentially compliant. And, and, and I'm like, I don't really, I, I don't like this. <laughs> you know? That's a setup for an abuser though. Yes, yes, yes. That is a setup for an abuser. Yep. And, you know, it's, it's all over the place about tamping down your emotions. Oh, why is the woman so overly emotional today? Oh, it's because she's operating from this moon center or this moon center. And uh -huh. there's an excuse. Okay, maybe, she, maybe this particular woman or a feminine person or whatever is politically correct now, right. maybe this feminine energy is a little hard to take but it doesn't mean it's wrong right even if, it's inconvenient. even if it's hysterically delivered or delivered in a time of pms it doesn't mean that it's wrong you know right so uh but that's the the dismissiveness mm. you know and what what is the first way the ferocity or the, the very confrontive divine feminine energy gets dismissed is she's crazy. Right, right. She's not right in the head. Right, it's a way of, of diminishing and totally dismissing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you know what, I'm not going for it. You know what? Yeah, I'm crazy and I'm right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, but it's it's interesting because I think we are in this time. Certainly, there is a changing of the age, and there is a a shifting and a morphing and a and and that there is a there. The divine feminine is so needed in this time, so needed for its compassion, for its ferocity where needed, mm -hmm. like you said um care connection community um and it doesn't mean wussiness because i think it's a lot of people um have this idea that somehow the feminine is somehow delicate but it's not i mean you know we've been pushing out babies <laughs> since i'm immoral you've got to be powerful strong a survivor to do that. In that trope? Yeah, ab absolutely, you know? And, but there's gotta be a balance between the divine feminine and the divine masculine. Absolutely. There is a, there is a, um, a honored being uh, called Sri Aurobindo and he had at his side, he was, he was doing this sadhana for the, the human race mm -hmm. to bring down a super consciousness. And he had the, a woman he called the mother at his side who handled all the earthly stuff. But she was also a, an avatar. They were both avatars. And she had this wonderful saying, and I thought it was really this statement about the balance between the masculine and the feminine. And it was, Without him, I do not exist. And without me, he does not manifest. Mm -hmm. So you need the seed, but you also need the soil, right? Absolutely. 
And that's the balance, you know? And as we get older and now we're not gonna have children and now we're not gonna, you know, but every, um, <clears throat> so much of our earthly karma has either been shed or gained depending on how you lived your life. But this chronism, which I'm really, you know, on, on the edge of and really looking forward to being in. Yeah, dig in the crone. <laughs> dig in the crone. And it is um, another great definition I heard of crone, which just means crown, by the way, um, uh, is the balance of the masculine, the divine masculine and the divine feminine in the being's psyche. Mm -hmm. So we've obviously been way out of balance, right? Mm -hmm. we've been in too much masculine stuff and they've certainly made a bollocks out of it so you know and it, it, they're written you know willing to turn mama earth into a cinder oh we'll just go to mars you know but there has to be some respect gained and sometimes it takes grabbing someone by the nape of the neck and giving them a good shake and saying, if you don't straighten up, I'm going to, I'm going to slap you silly metaphorically, mm -hmm. you know, uh, we're going to take our votes to the voting booth and we're going to slap you silly, mm -hmm. you know, and it's kind of what I'm looking for. I've been a little impatient recently. I have this lifespan and I'm like, does anyone remember the whole earth catalog? Because you know, that yeah. came out in 1970 and it's all was laid out in there, you know? And you know, so I'm, re I'm reminded of Jane Goodall, Dr. Jane Goodall and how she is 87 this year and how she doesn't spend more than two weeks at Gombe uh, in Tanzania with the chimps because she needs to be out there in the world talking to people, connecting with people, reminding mm -hmm. them. And, 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 and when asked about that, about how difficult it must be not to be in nature for extended periods of time, like she used to be, you know, yeah. when she was younger, she said, I carry the forest in me. Nice. And I thought that was so beautiful that she carries it where she goes. And what's interesting about her is she's an example of the divine feminine. She is a person who is um, very quiet in her presence. I, I saw her lecture at Grace Cathedral in San Francisco about 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. And she started the talk with a chimpanzee greeting. She filled the nave of Grace Cathedral with this fantastic, you know, and, but she's so deliberate with her words and so quiet and gentle and powerful at the same time. And mm -hmm. she embodies really what we're talking about with it. I mean, she's a warrior. Yeah, absolutely. And at the same time, she is someone who is really received i think by everyone as a as a as a, a revered elder yes and we so need the crone right we mm -hmm. so need these revered elders more of them right 
and and she is extraordinary you know and she's insisted on an extraordinary life her entire life mm -hmm. the crones were taken away with the advent of christianity mm -hmm. it was competition yeah burned at the stake many of them yeah yeah so so yeah i mean and you know even in early christianity the the power of the wife was taken away priests used to be able to be married right yep. until it was suddenly realized by the church that the wives were getting the they were inheriting all the gifts that had been brought to them mm -hmm. and, and the, the children as shamans yeah right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. as shamans because they were looked at as shamans in those early times right right and um no more mm -hmm. no nope. we want we want it all mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it's so. going to be interesting to see what happens. I, I'm, I'm happy to see, you know, my nephews are 31 and 29, respectively. Mm -hmm. And these are people who are very conscious of the state of things, the state of the world. And I think there's probably a lot of them like that in these younger generations. And that these are, these are our hope. Yeah. My sons are 33 and 30. Mm -hmm. So, and um, I see them wavering between good ideas and wanting things to change and cynicism. Mm. And it's the cynicism that worries me. And, you know, I think this last uh, year and a half or year and three quarters or whatever the pandemic has been for us has been really wearing on people's hope. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know what the outcome is for that. You know, I don't know if there's going to be another oomph, let's do it, or, or okay, we're folding up, we're folding up our tents, and whatever happens, happens. You know, but it sounds like your nephews still have some energy. <laughs> mm. And I know my sons do too, but there's other yeah. days I talk to them and I'm like, yeah, they're played out right now. As we all are. We all are, for sure. Mm -hmm. Just gotta catch them on, catch your energy on the right day. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, and we're in such a, still such a divisive time. And I think that social media has a role in that, a big role, unfortunately, in terms of dividing people, whether it's politically or whether it's regarding the pandemic or what, you know, and, and, it, it's, we're in a state of division. And I think the answer is to bring people together and you don't have to always agree with people. I think there's this sort of false notion sometimes that people think that just because that person doesn't agree with me on everything, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be against them. You know, instead of that model, let's say, hey, we, our belief systems are based upon our experience and maybe that person comes from a different place than you do. How about right. you have them over and you have a meal and you have a conversation and you discover that actually you've got more in common than you ever thought you did. Yeah, well, and I think social media is responsible for politicizing everything. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. 
it's, it's huge. It's, it's really big that way. And then the pandemic has not allowed for us to meet in the middle. The chasm has gotten bigger, but you know, I always liked the kind of Jimmy Carter um, tactic, negotiation tactic. Mm -hmm. What are the things, the five most important things to you? Mm. And people on either side of the table would write them down. They may not be in exactly the right order, but they're pretty much the same. Yeah. You know, and how you go about and get them without one side or the other feeling threatened. The other thing is everything is taken so personally. Yeah. You know, I don't know if you've been vaccinated or not. It doesn't matter to me. I still love you, you right. know? So you've chosen not to get vaccinated. All right. You've chosen to get vaccinated. Okay. You yeah. know? So the, and, and judgment doesn't work if the other person isn't taking it personally. Yeah. It's the only way it works. Mm -hmm. You know? Because I've heard a lot of things, you know, from friends who, with whom I am sort of normally allied with politically or ideologically or whatever. And I hear words out of their mouths like, those people. Yeah. If only they would just. Mm -hmm. Don't they see, you don't know someone's backstory. Exactly. Yeah. I got some, I got, I got a scold on, and I rarely, rarely do I say anything on Facebook, but someone wrote something just out to lunch. Right. And I was like, oh, please, please don't put weirdness here. Yeah. And then it was, it's people like you. I was like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and you can't, you can't win because no matter what you say, it's going to be taken the wrong way because it's seen through the filter of that judgment. Well, and you know, I have some um, relationships with some big teachers in the Kundalini world, mm -hmm. right? And people are yelling at that, yelling on social media for them to come out and say what they think about Yogi Bhajan. And they're like, you can't win. It doesn't right. matter what I say. Right. It doesn't matter what I say. And, and, and that's, that's the truth of it because these things require conversations, not little bubble, not little reply bubbles. Right. Exactly. And it's so interesting how it's like, ah, Dana Ziegler, ah, Vicki Rose, right? It's like, <laughs> it's like whoa. Okay. <laughs> and it's, and also the other thing is that people are with social media, people are emboldened because they're not looking you in the eye. They're so it, mm -hmm. it's 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 sort of like the twitter phenomenon you know people yeah. feel emboldened to get really snarky behind the keyboard when if they actually had to sit down with that person and have an eye-to-eye -eye conversation it might actually go very differently and subtly hear their breath see their skin tone um have to get a reply back immediately uh without them interpreting the tone of the reply. Right. You know, mm -hmm. really hearing the tone of the reply. Mm -hmm. Any nuance of thought? I, I saw an interview recently with John Stewart 
whom I love because he has an ability to express nuance, which nuance is something that we are sorely lacking in the public sphere. And he was unwilling to be to be condemning of this person or that person because he said that's part of the problem is that we're getting wrapped up in this judgment in this you know there's a larger agenda here so let's um you know let's let's really look at these things instead of having these blanket statements about one thing or the other and um, I thought, bravo for you, you know, because we, it's so needed in the in the public, you know, in the in the public sphere, because we have so little real exchange. Well, it's been building up to this, and you know, as they say, the fish stinks from the head down, <laughs> and we got what we had been asking for when we put the adolescent in the Oval Office, mm-hmm. bully, right? Mm-hmm. And that has set a tone, right? You know, and that's a tone that now we finally have an adult in the room and hopefully that's starting to seep through, but it takes time. It takes a longer time, I think, to undo things, especially when they feel so emotionally gratifying. Right. Okay, so I think of the times when I was drinking, right? Mm And the best times I, was, I would have is like, yeah, I got really mad at that guy and da 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 because I was numb. Mm-hmm. And the best way I could make myself feel alive was to get really mad. And I think people are really numb right now. So, I mean, that's just my, my take on it. Yeah. So that you get really mad. You get really, mm-hmm. you know, and you go down some crazy rabbit hole. I don't care if it's the left or the right or right. the two or the X or the whatever it uh-huh. is, you know everything's a big oh my god sort of thing and it makes you feel so good to get outraged because you've been sitting maybe you've been in lockdown and you're sitting at home you've been watching i don't know you're watching curb your enthusiasm for the third time or something you know or (laughs) friends for the eighth time or you know um and the bandwidth the energy just isn't there because the world's gotten smaller and smaller and smaller for Mm -hmm. you you know not everybody writes not everybody creates not everybody you know so yeah it's it's a it's a tough time and i think i want to i i don't know what i want to do exactly but i i would like to see them who are in charge and making life difficult for others be brought to bear for it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how exactly I'm going to participate in that. In the meantime, them who are having a hard time are the people that I've been trying to help. Yes. You know, alleviating suffering where you can in small ways. Again, we get back to the Buddhism, right? Mm-hmm. That's the that's the job to alleviate suffering. Mm-hmm. You know, until all sentient beings can get the heck out of here. Yes, the bodhisattva path. Yes, yes. And I haven't quite agreed to that yet. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
like, I haven't taken the money out to pledge. I'm like, I'm not too sure. I might want to leave on my own. Like, really? Do I have to wait for everybody to get? Yes, out? yes, that's it. I was like, holy man. But if I'm really an infinite being, it shouldn't be much of a problem, right? <laughs> well. This, this has been so delightful and we've covered so much territory and it's, this has been so great. So it's been great for me too. I think this is such a, this is a lovely way to, to tie it into a bow. Okay. Ending on the, the uh, question about whether or not to become a Bodhisattva. <laughs> Looks good on paper. <laughs> it does. It does actually, it really does. It, it, does. it feels good in the heart too, so. Thank you so much for a lovely Thank conversation. Thank you, Vicki Rose. And what an honor and a privilege it was to speak to my dear friend and mentor, Vicki Rose, today. Thank you, Vicki, for your time. And also thanks to Vicki for the track that you're about to hear, which comes off of her latest album of mantras. I actually forgot to talk to her in the interview about this, but she has, I believe, three albums out of mantras, yoga mantras, and mantras for meditation. This one is Bountiful, Blissful, Beautiful. And anybody who has done Kundalini Yoga will recognize this as a beautiful little piece that has to do with self-care. So enjoy it. Enjoy the peace it brings you. Take good care of yourselves take good care of each other. And as always, I will see you on the other side. Satanam.
Thank you.